At the recent first Breast Cancer Symposium in San Francisco, jointly sponsored by a number of organizations, including the American Society of Breast Surgeons and ASCO, Dr. Paul Goss gave the kickoff presentation with the provocatively titled Talk of Estrogen, Carcinogen, Growth Promoter, or Treatment. I met with Dr. Goss to chat not only about these new concepts in the biology of estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, but also to pick his brain about some of the clinical implications of his groundbreaking work just over the last two or three years, focusing on delayed endocrine therapy five to ten years after first diagnosis. Dr. Goss began our conversation by putting these concepts in perspective. The majority of breast cancer patients have ER positive disease. Those patients who are premenopausal with ER positive disease are currently managed in one way and postmenopausal in another. Of course, long term survivors who are premenopausal ultimately become postmenopausal. And with the emerging recognition of the chronic persistent relapse risk of the hormone dependent breast cancer, we're extending therapies. We now have approved therapy out to 10 years. There are multiple, there are at least six actively accruing international studies looking at extending adjuvant endocrine therapy between 5 and 10 years now with AIs. And we now have a randomized trial between 10 and 15 years with Letrozole. The MA17 design is being done again. So it looks increasingly at the last Oxford overview publication, the core specific mortality rate of ER positive breast cancer and ER negative breast cancer, the curves come together at 15 years. So ER is not a good prognostic factor long-term for breast cancer patients. It's a good predictive factor for response to endocrine therapy. So this is a much more dangerous variant of breast cancer than surgeons and doctors and medical oncologists and patients and the public have thought. And there is a need to consider extended therapy. Any kind of sense, you know, this has really been a revelation, this, even though the data maybe was there for a while about this issue of the long-term natural history. Any sense about the biology of what's going on with these patients that they would develop such late relapse and why it doesn't occur so commonly with ER-negative tumors? It's a very interesting question. I mean, especially the last part of your question. No, I don't think so. I was asked to give a talk on tumor dormancy recently, and I spent a lot of time reading the literature on it, and I met some very good people, and I'm writing a manuscript with Anne Chambers in London, Ontario, who's a world expert in the laboratory on this. And we don't really know what's going on behind the curtain in the dark in micrometastatic disease. We don't know if there's a stem cell sitting waiting to repopulate the patient's body or if there's dormancy in specific tissues that are going to go tissue to tissue when they finally metastasize, you know, sitting in the bone marrow, and then somehow it gets out, or whether there's just a very slow progressive disease in the background. And why that should pertain to endocrine-responsive tumors and not endocrine-non-responsive, you know, negative tumors, that is a mystery to me. Suffice it to say, possibly, that the drivers of hormone-dependent breast cancer come predominantly from the patient's physiological state, the estrogen pathway, whereas maybe eonegative breast cancer is driven by ligands that are partly tumor-based. It's almost like it has to sustain itself to sustain itself, and if it can't, it can't, whereas ER-positive may sit there. I don't really understand it. I mean, quite frankly, I'll say something totally against all dogma, and that is that I don't know if I firmly believe in eonegative breast cancer. I've always thought that... Most, if not all, ER-negative breast cancer is actually hormone-dependent, and that it loses its hormone dependency by having alternative pathways switching off the hormone pathway. And, you know, one example of that is with the HER2. It appears that some 
ER negative tumors become ER positive when you treat them with Herceptin. So it seems that maybe the ER pathway is just switched off by another pathway. And when we find these interesting targeted therapies, we'll turn them back on. And I may have straight off your question, but here's the point. Is there a stem cell for breast cancer in the background that is not vulnerable to the current cancer therapies? So for example, I think we pat ourselves on the back when we get these clinical remissions. And what we might be doing is we're going into the street where 2,000 people are looting the stores and we're rounding up 1,990 of them and the population of looters goes down tremendously and we say, what a massive achievement we've done. And then the four instigators of the riot in the first place are crouching in the alleys and they just simply repopulate the street with another 2,000 rioters as soon as you turn your back. So there's a tremendous lack of understanding of how the cancer operates, like you ask. It's a very good question. From a practical perspective, what do we know about the impact of delayed endocrine therapy you know, in the five to ten year window or beyond? Yeah, so what we've learned from our own study, and I think from if you put together the body of data now, the Oxford overview has got really substantial and reliable data out to fifteen years of follow up. And with MA seventeen we've got good data in the post tamoxifen setting for five, six, seven, eight years after that. So we're out to twelve, thirteen years. And what we see is that The disease has this chronic relapsing nature. It, by and large, doesn't lose its endocrine sensitivity. We had this very interesting finding that the ER plus PR minus patients appear perhaps not to be so sensitive to endocrine therapy later on, so maybe they're not being endocrine-driven. But 75% of the patients were double positive in the late follow-up, and they're exquisitely sensitive to endocrine therapy. And the point is that the French and one other group did a trial years ago where they started tamoxifen out of the blue, if you want to call it right. that. Patients didn't get their adjuvant tamoxifen, so they did it. And when they did it, they found a very profound benefit. And that's true now for the post-unblinding MA17 paper we have in press. So what I'm saying translated for the clinician is if you've got a woman, either never got endocrine therapy because she forgot to get it or somebody didn't give it, or she got an abbreviated version of it and stopped for a wrong reason or maybe a trivial toxicity, or she's finished what is considered standard and she's out in follow-up, If you read our published data now, you have to conclude that there's an ongoing risk of recurrence. And there's no way, in my view, that these patients will be disenfranchised from benefiting from anti-cancer therapy. So I think this is something that doctors have to talk to patients about. What are the numbers that you would give to a patient who's in that 5- to 10-year window in terms of the risk of relapse? The overall composite risk is approximately, for no positive patients, it's 4% per annum. So between year 5 and 10, it's 20% risk. And for no negative patients, it's 10% in those five years, so 2% per annum. Now, within those percentages per annum, there are metastases, ipsilateral local recurrence, and contralateral breast cancer. So there are three types of recurrence. And it is true to say that the absolute benefit of therapy will be reduced if the patients had bilateral mastectomies or even a single mastectomy. So for each breast surgery the patient has, the basket of what are termed recurrences is decreased. But you're still left with a small but real risk of a metastasis. So for example, in no patient is the level of risk of metastasis below, say, 0.8% per annum. If you look at tamoxifen prevention, prevention of new primary breast cancer, The FDA has approved that for way lower than 0.8% per annum. It's actually 1.66 divided by 5. It's 0.3% per annum. And people take a pill. Here you're talking about a 0.8% per annum risk of death because you get metastases. So what I'm saying is that even in the lowest risk patient you can think of, there's a risk of death 
that exceeds the risk of getting a new primary for patients that are FDA-approved for tamoxifen. So why wouldn't you consider giving them therapy? So from a practical perspective, are we really looking at the 5- to 10-year window or even beyond that 10 to 15 years? I think we're looking at beyond, but I think it's a careful debate that will be built iteratively. There's both efficacy and there is toxicity and there's event rates. So it's easy for me to tell you what that event rate was we just discussed because that's in the placebo patients. But now if we have already treated a patient with five years of tamoxifen and five years of an AI or some other version of it, so in other words, if a patient has completed 10 years of endocrine therapy, what is the residual event rate after that? And is there still an unmet medical need? And it could be really low. Now, for a surgeon kind of getting a view of what the oncologist is doing in terms of endocrine therapy, can you kind of capsulize where we are in terms of the initiation of endocrine therapy, both in the postmenopausal women and premenopausal women today? Right. So I think you've asked several questions in one there, which are interesting. First of all, some of the changes that are occurring are as follows. There's a return to the old-fashioned idea that chemotherapy may be less effective in hormone-dependent risk than we thought. And so I think there's a diminution of the use of adjuvant chemotherapy going on right now. And honestly, I think that's going slightly too far. So I'm seeing patients coming for second opinions who've got node-positive, estrogen-receptor-positive disease, women in their 40s being told they don't need adjuvant chemotherapy, they just need hormones. And this was driven, I have to say, largely by the paper that was published by Don Berry in the NEJM, which is a brilliant paper, but it's kind of being overinterpreted by people, I think. And that kind of suggested that maybe the benefits of the chemotherapy were less in patients with the ER-positive tumor. That's right, substantially less, and that to a large extent, you know, you could argue that they're not worth it. But in fact, I think that one must be very careful with that because they're, in my view, certainly node-positive patients who are young with ER-positive disease should still receive adjuvant chemotherapy. What about selection of endocrine therapy up front in the postmenopausal and premenopausal women? Obviously, AIs have come in now in the last five or six years, and tamoxifen is still the standard in premenopausal women. What's new in terms of trials looking at new issues or new strategies with these patients? Well, I think the most important endocrine strategies, just to circle back to your first question about evolving endocrine therapy in pre- and postmenopausal women. In premenopausal women... We still have old-fashioned five years of tamoxifen, but the ongoing trial that everybody talks about, the two trials, the text and the soft trial, they really are addressing the two questions, which is, is ovarian function suppression of a young premenopausal woman of additional advantage? And I think the answer is going to be yes. The question is going to be at what cost and to whom should you do that? Because we know that the bone loss is profound from premature. And there's some paper actually just in neurology in the last few weeks on the front page of the New York Times that may be a risk of dementia and Parkinsonism in long-term follow-up patients who have had premature ophorectomy performed. That's not to say, actually, that in a high-risk breast cancer patient, you might not do it anyway because of the risk of dying from breast cancer. But in any case... Deciding whether you need ophorectomy and then deciding whether the aromatase inhibitor with ovarian function suppression is going to be useful, I think that's a really key evolving thing in premenopausal women. The postmenopausal women, we have a lot of I's to dot and T's to cross. One is the duration when we've talked about it a lot. Is this endocrine therapy going to go on indefinitely or out to 10, 15 years? And if so, in whom? And what's the cost going to be? And that's all evolving in multiple trials. Then there's things like what's the optimal agent? Anastrozole versus exemestane is a class study. It's a study of two classes, a steroid versus a non-steroid. The FACE trial run by Novartis is a potency trial, letrozole versus anastrozole. It's a note positive 4,000 patient trial that's accruing rapidly now. So you're going to see that I dotted and the T's crossed, potency, class, duration. 
intermittency, something we talked about, is being looked at now. Combination with Fazlodex and an AI is going to be looked at soon. The issues around HER2 positive with endocrine therapy. Do you need lapatinib or Herceptin and how does that work? So these are the evolving things there. And those things, the duration issues and the combination issues there, they apply equally to premenopausal women and postmenopausal. Let's talk a little bit about what we've learned in the last few years about the side effects and toxicities of raw mutation inhibitors beginning with bone. Yeah, so I think just to be very clear, this is a separate issue from pre- and postmenopausal women, as you said. So most of our experiences in postmenopausal women to date... And I'm going to make a kind of almost irreverent remark up front and then backtrack and explain it. And it goes like this. Sitting in front of you is a postmenopausal woman who's had breast cancer. And she needs her bone health cared for. And there are national osteoporosis guidelines for a woman of this age. And they relate to exercise, counseling, family history taking, and all those things, vitamin D and calcium supplementation, and monitoring of bone density on a two-year basis. And whether this patient had ever had breast cancer or not, and regardless of what kind of therapy she's going to or has had or not, she needs that bone health monitored like that. Having set the stage for you in that way, I will tell you, once you do the right thing for this woman, you need not alter what you're doing at all as to whether she is or is not going on to an aromatase inhibitor. I've published two papers in 2006 on this, one in the Journal of Clinical Oncology and one in the American Journal of Cancer Reviews, where I showed a simple chart for doctors in the community to read, and it tells you exactly how to monitor and exactly how to... And ASCO have guidelines and exactly how much calcium and vitamin D and which formulations are available. We wrote a paper, six of us, three oncologists, three osteoporosis experts, put our minds together in Chicago. We came up with this paper, and I really like it. So if a patient were to say to you, in your hands or following these kinds of guidelines, am I going to have an excess risk of having a serious fracture by taking an aromatase inhibitor? The answer is no. And the reason it's no is because the answer is yes in the clinical trials because the patients weren't properly monitored. I mean, not properly monitored and treated. Now that we know the benefits of monitoring and salvage bisphosphonate, the answer is no. I'll give you an example. We know that if a woman has a normal bone density, as defined as a BMD better than minus 1.5, and she's sitting in front of me, if she starts an AI or not, her next bone density would be due two years later. Because no patient in that category, in the three published trials, has become osteoporotic without therapy. So the annual screen falls away. You don't need to do an annual screen, but you do need to do a two-year screen. Now, at the two-year screen, she may have got osteopenic from normal to osteopenic. But at that point, you then implement the osteoporosis guidelines, which is, hey, wait a minute, this patient needs prophylactic bisphosphate. So when you finish doing this, you've looked after the patient well, and you shouldn't imperil the patient by using concurrent AI. Another side effect that's been, I think, more discussion from docs is the arthralgias, the aches and right. pains of right. the aromatase inhibitors. What have we learned about that in the last few years? Not a lot, other than that it's real and severe, rarely in patients. So there's a small set of women, and it's a classic setting for a pharmacogenomic study, actually. Why do some women uniquely get this side effect over and above others? I think there are kind of two syndromes that you're referring to. One is a vague muscle aching, and actually it's an interesting kind of large areas of muscle on the back or chest wall ache. It's like something you never see in medicine. It's really odd. Versus a true synovial fluid accumulation in the small joints of the hands 
and a truly serious joint problem. The important thing that we have learned is that that's rare. Secondly, that it's not autoimmune. I think that's really important. This is not a dangerous arthropathy, and it's not something that's going to leave the patient with an ongoing and perpetuated problem. If you stop the drug, I believe it always goes away. But it is disabling in a small percentage of patients, and it is a consideration that doctors are giving to women who do find skills, like you know, even typing on a computer, but certainly professional musicians or somebody like that who has it, because this is something that can be quite serious. The good news is that it's actively under investigation, both from a nursing point of view. We have a big research study starting with our nursing group, and the data Faber leading our group also in a medical intervention study, because... We want to find out if you take drug holidays or you counsel people with these side effects, and we want to see whether there's a nursing intervention that can lead to earlier intervention of anti-inflammatories and things. What fraction of this problem, or what's the frequency of the muscle kind of thing you describe versus the actual arthralgia? I think it's hard to be very, very certain, because if you look across the big trials, the reporting is so different, and it's a bit like hot flashes, and the explanation for that is the accession of the data. You know. How was the data collected in a particular trial? Was it solicited or was it volunteered? And it's quite complicated. So it's quite hard. I mean, I'm going to give you my gestalt on this, is that I think about 30% of patients get musculoskeletal symptoms of some sort, but it's not a deal break in the overwhelming majority. I think the true bad synovial arthritis is really low, below 5% of patients or even less. What do we know about the pathophysiology of this syndrome? Not a lot. I mean... I actually think there was a very nice paper written about this and published by David Felson and Steve Cummings on this particular topic because there's been a lot of controversy as to whether this is a menopausal phenomenon or whether it's drug-induced. Are we just really documenting something that happens to women anyway in menopause? And I think there's an element of valid controversy in that because I do think that joint discomfort and arthralgia is more common in menopause and postmenopause in the healthy population. But I also think that the AIs contribute over and above that. I've had this sort of pet clinical idea, but and maybe your nurses' studies already looking at this, but I was curious whether or not either stretching or massage would help these syndromes. I don't know, and that's exactly the type of research that our nursing staff are going to do. They're going to work with physios and with the rheumatologists and with medical intervention versus, as you say, kind of lifestyle interventions and things. Recognizing it early, taking a drug holiday, using anti-inflammatories. Yeah, I mean, I think... That it's interesting. I mean, it's true that the doctors report such different experiences with this side effect. The last thing I want to ask you about is the issue of HER2-positive disease. And just to begin, if you could just kind of summarize your take of what's happened in the last few years, the last couple of years, in terms of the adjuvant use of trastuzumab and where you think things are heading, and also the issue of HER2 testing. So I think that the whole area of the HER2 pathway, the testing and the advent of Herceptin and its results is a pretty dramatic new achievement for breast cancer patients and doctors because in addition to the obvious advantages and improvement in both relapse-free survival and survival in the one-year exposure to Herceptin trials, in addition to that, we've learned that the laboratory scientists are indeed able to identify a target that isn't just a fish with a hook that matches the fish's mouth. Many of the laboratory models are set up to predict wonderful successes, and when you get to the patient, they fail dismally. This is an example where sufficient rigor and sufficient verification of the target 
in the hands of the scientists, predicted a great response in the clinic, and it happened. And so it was a really, truly important pathway. And I think there are other pathways out there that are going to mimic this. So I think the, my personal take is I really have great hope that the IGF-1 receptor pathway is going to be important, particularly in the endocrine response of breast cancer. So I like that pathway. I think that's going to be the next big news, actually. I'm going to have to divert out to that then. What about the IGF pathway? What is it, and how do you think it's going to relate to these ER-positive tumors? It's the insulin-like growth factor 1 receptor pathway. It's intimately linked to the insulin growth factor pathway. So it's kind of on the diabetes, lipid metabolism, glucohomeostasis pathway. And it's very interesting because you know that there's been this constant rumor-mongering amongst researchers that diabetes and breast cancer and obesity and high lipid cholesterolemia are all linked together, and I think they are. And I think the IGF, the insulin growth factor pathway, is important in the pathogenesis of breast cancer. And it seems that there's a collaboration and cross-talking between this pathway and the endocrine pathway that's very close. They're close neighbors. They're close cousins. And like we talked about, the tumor cell using different pathways to benefit itself. I think these two. So I think we're predicting, we're doing a trial right now, and we're predicting a great synergy between IGF-1 blockade, receptor blockade, and anti-estrogen therapy. But to go back to Herceptin, the duration of Herceptin is up for discussion. It's either going to go shorter or longer. The scheduling is not known. The optimal dose isn't properly defined yet. You know, there's a lot of outstanding questions. But it's a very effective. The disadvantage of one-week IV infusion for a year, it's a lot of therapy. It's very costly. Side effect, it's well-tolerated, except for this sort of behind-the-curtain 4% congestive cardiac rate. So for certain patients who've got abnormal starting LVEFs, it's a very unwise drug to give. But otherwise, it's very well-tolerated. What about trastuzumab without an anthracycline? Trastuzumab without anthracycline looks very promising. The only objection I can see to that is just very much more long-term follow-up data. But yes, I mean, I think that the regimens that have given it to date, like the TCH with Herceptin, a really good result. Now, your work has really changed the use of hormonal therapy in a delayed fashion, as we've yeah. been talking about. What about the issue of delayed anti-HER2 therapies? It's very interesting. I mean, one can speculate as to whether these pathways that are turned on are kind of turned on all the time. I mean, if you look at the Gleevec example, if you stop the drug, the disease comes back, so you're on for life. You know, this is a switch that has to be switched off every day, or otherwise it's going to switch back on, and you're going to have return to the high risk of it. I actually think that could turn out to be the case for her too. So we have data coming on that, the two versus one year, I think, or in any case, we'll see occurrences after the completion of the therapy. But there is an obvious, fairly substantial ongoing risk of recurrence despite Herceptin, but whether it sort of increases and escalates when you take the drug off, we'll find out when they report the two versus one year, whether that's better, you know. But delayed therapy, we do have data showing that HER2-positive breast cancer is still a driver of risk right out to 11 years in the literature. There's a substantial increased annual hazard of recurrence if you've got a HER2-positive tumor. So both in the ER-positive and ER-negative setting, we think those patients are potential candidates, and that's why we've done the TEACH trial, which is giving an anti-HER2 therapy called lipatinib to patients, regardless of how far in follow-up they are, if they've not been exposed to Herceptin in the past. Can you talk a little bit about lipatinib? I guess one advantage in this situation is it's oral, but what do we know about it? Lipatinib is a small molecule. It's a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It's not a monoclonal antibody. So it has several potential advantages over Herceptin. One is that it has two targets, HER1 and HER2. Two, if the Herceptin, if the HER2 receptor doesn't have an external domain, the so-called P95 mutant, 
It can have an internal section that's still constitutively driven. So the patient has a HER2-positive cancer, but there's nothing sticking out for the monoclonal to stick onto and switch it off. The tyrosine kinase gets inside may turn that off. So that's a potential advantage. And finally, it's less cardiotoxic. The reason for it unexplained. But it does cause more symptoms. It causes more rash and more problems like that. But it is partly non-cross-resistant because we see decent responses post-herceptin and there's an approval by the FDA in combination with chemotherapy for this in a post-herceptin setting. So it's exciting because we've got now two non-cross-resistant anti-HER2 therapies that can add to the patient's armamentarium. So in this trial, the TEACH trial, what kinds of patients are going to be eligible and what's the randomization? ER positive, ER negative, all HER2 positive. And any time since diagnosis? Any time since diagnosis. But never have gotten trastuzumab? Never got trastuzumab. All of them have to have had a certain risk or level of risk, so it's not for the low-risk patients, and all of them have to have had adjuvant chemotherapy, but they can be pre- and post-menopausal, ER positive, ER negative, and we stratify for all those things. And we've got 3,000 patient trial and about 2,000 on the trial already. Awesome. Yeah.